Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers for DC. Welcome to The Echo Chamber. This is Arun Sudhaman, and we're here to do a review of 2016, um, an interesting year in many respects. And joining us to help us do this, we're very happy to have in the studio for his debut performance in the Echo Chamber podcast. It is David Gallagher. Hello, Arun. Glad to be here. This is my debut now that I think about it. I it is. I had had a chance to sit down with you here. Yeah, we've waited too long. I think um, I think your people made it quite difficult for, for us to book you. you know, it, was, it was tough. I, it's, it's interesting to have you in because when we're talking about 2016, obviously some seismic political shocks. Um, but also one of the big highlights was you got a new job. I did. I got a new job back in, uh, back in August. Okay. So tell us a little bit about your new job now. You were, of course, previously a thought for quite a while, European CEO at Ketchum. Yeah, that's right. Um, for about, actually, almost 10 years at different capacities in, in London for, for Ketchum. Earlier this year, Omnicom PR Group set up a, a new, I'm sorry, Omnicom set up a new structure, a management structure to bring some cohesion to the 12 agencies that are PR agencies that are in the uh, in the wider group under the direction of Karen Van Bergen, um, who was previously with both Porter Novelli and, and Fleischmann. <clears throat> Excuse me. She asked me to uh, to help pick up operations outside of the, the U.S. with a specific focus on, on growth and, and development. So mm. um, it's a small team, only six of us. Uh, I'm the only one not sitting in, in New York, so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty busy. But it's been fascinating. I've, I, of course, I knew Ketchum. I'd partnered on different clients with Fleischman Hillard, had friends at places like Porto Novelli and, and Portland. But to see them in operation, to see the potential to bring them together for clients that, that might want something more than a specific agency has, an individual agency has, has been, uh, you know, it's been uh, encouraging and, and, and rewarding. Uh, it's been great to see the kind of talent that the agencies can can um, attract, uh, and it's great to see what we can bring to the marketplace. So it's been uh, it's been a, a wild. Uh, busy first few months, but I'm, I'm pretty excited about what, what that part of 2017 looks like. Mm, indeed. So we'll talk a little bit about your new role and about the uh, the agency landscape perhaps later on, but I suspect that no uh, review of the year would be possible uh, without talking about all of the political upheaval we've seen, um, starting, I guess, with Brexit. Things were, were okay before then. It was a, It was a more innocent time. I think we woke up to uh, to a new world with with Brexit. I'm not sure that the that there weren't some warning signs coming before that that mm. that maybe uh, pollsters weren't as accurate as we thought they might be. Um, mm. That journalists had a finger on the pulse of what people were were really thinking. Um, you know what the general geopolitical landscape might might look like. Um, and I was was among them. You know, in terms of not seeing what was happening, I, I woke up as surprised as anyone to the mm. to the Brexit decision. Um, I was a little less surprised, but probably uh, uh, maybe as disappointed as, as, as others to the uh, outcome of some of the elections like we saw in the, uh, in the U.S. Mm. So, yeah, I think 2016 will look back on it as, uh, as the beginning of something pretty significant. Mm-hmm. I, I've seen a few people commenting about how happy they will be to see 2016 in the, in the rearview mirror. Um, I'm not so sure that 2017 will be a lot better. No, it's not um, as if the bad news just suddenly <laughs> stops, right, when we move into another year. Exactly. Um, so obviously we have Brexit, we have the um, the election of Donald Trump in the U.S., uh, we have the the vote in Italy yep, this week. Just week. So yeah. um, 
the the referendum loss there. Uh, probably some more political shocks. I mean, there's, there's been things happening in, in other countries around the world, Philippines, uh, China, and so on. So we'll, we'll, there are so many things here we could get into, but let's just start right at the kind of broadest possible level. I mean, for for someone working in, in the communications industry like you have for, for so long, what was your big lesson from, from this year when it, when it comes to messaging? Well, so I have been doing this for a long time, and it seems like every year we talk about communications or PR being at the crossroads. We've been saying this for, uh, for, for 20 years, that uh, for some reason, you know, what's come before will be different, uh, significantly different than what's going to come in the, in the near future. I actually really believe that uh, this time, and I, I think it's a convergence of, uh, of technology, of uh, social media, of the uh, echo effect of uh, Facebook becoming the primary source for, for most uh, at least English speakers and other parts of the Western world as, as a way of sharing news. It is the biggest publishing platform in, in the world, and, and that's how we end up finding our way into uh, into different news stories. I think SEO and, and the capacity to, uh, to to follow viewers and, and, and uh, readers around the world and, and put content in front of them is a, is a big factor that we probably underestimated in this election. Mm. And the willingness of... Um, you know, of some to produce um, either distorted or, or outright um, fake news, I think are, are kind of three big things that are, are going to mm-hmm. be on our agenda um, next year. Mm. And from a, a professional point of view, I, I, I wouldn't say this is necessarily an existential crisis, but it's definitely a big ethical challenge for us and, mm. and um, begs questions for how we respond to that professionally. Mm. I, think, I mean, you know, it's, it's, there, are, there are people that would disagree, right? But I, But I think... The, the public relations model has been built on this idea that you present the facts, your side of the story, and ultimately, hopefully, that will win the day. And we're in an environment now, we call it the post-truth era or, or whatever we call it, where actually presenting the facts is really not enough. So what does that mean? Do, 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 we, do we start lying? Well, no, I think there are a couple things, though. I think that at our most neutral, PR people have been seen as spin doctors, as somehow shielding uh, people from from the truth about companies or, or brands, or distorting information to put it, it uh, put put a idea, a brand or company forward in the best light possible. And that's probably at, at our most neutral view. I think at our worst, we've been seen as propagandists, as kind of manipulators of opinion, and we've seen over history that that's had uh, you know catastrophic consequences. So. Uh, from a neutral to a negative perception, neither one of these are, 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 are great for us. Um, I, I think as, a, as, as facts are brought into this, the, the truth is that the news and facts have always been subjective and they've always been um, something that, that you could manipulate. What I worry is that uh, people, consumers, citizens have uh, lost the willingness to try to discern between the, the truth and, uh, and, and, and opinion. I'm mm-hmm. not sure that uh, – We've ever actually used facts to, to form our, our, our views, but we, we at least mm-hmm. went through the pretense of sorting through information and trying to uh, justify our views based on mm-hmm. available facts. We seem very willing just to skip that process now mm-hmm. and justify our opinions based on, on how we're feeling or what we, what we want the facts to be. Mm. And in terms of this, the, the, the phenomenon of fake news, um, I mean, we know this is not, not really new. There's, this has always been around, yep. but... It's almost like it's on steroids now because, um, one, it's so easy to find, it travels so quickly, and, and two, uh, it's reinforced. If, yep. you, if you click on one fake news story, then you, you receive 
loads and loads yep. in your yep. in your newsfeed. I mean, how big a problem do you think this is when we're talking about a discourse um, that you, you really want to value honesty and, and and truth and facts and credibility, and is now moving to a place where um, you know nothing is trusted and everything is trusted. <laughs> Well, I, I think the damage of fake news exists on, on several levels. I mean, uh, at the one hand, um, a little bit of fake news tends to taint all all the news, and it becomes really easy to reject anything that comes before you. And I, I think that that's intentional on on some people's uh, uh, part. I, I think that you know, blaming the media in general, mainstream media in general, plays to certain um, political ideologies or certain mm -hmm. um, you know, ways of looking at, at the world. So. There's almost no regard for the kind of damage that's done beyond uh, a specific piece of, uh, of misinformation or, or fake news. So there is general widespread damage. I think on, a, on particular issues, we saw in, in the Brexit, the way certain benefits of Brexit were, were portrayed. I think we, we're seeing it now unfold with some of the promises made in the, in the presidential campaign that some specific um, policies will be affected by, uh, by, by fake news. So I actually think that um, it's, it's a pretty specific problem, uh, pretty acute problem for mm. democracy and, and for, for a free market. For the PR business, I think you know, we trade more or less in, in trust, in honesty, um, in aligning a company or a brand's expectations with, with the public. Mm -hmm. And our main currency, if it's not news, it is information. And mm. if that is undervalued or undermined, you know, I think we have a real business problem in front of us as well. Mm. How, how do you address that? You know, in terms of, of, of the clients that you work with, um, it's, it's an environment now. It, it suggests where people will believe anything about a political figure and, by extension, a company. So, in that kind of landscape, what, what kind of measures can you take? Well, it's you know, it's pretty smoky out there right now. I'm not sure that we've seen the, uh, the as we we're saying. I'm not sure the smoke has has cleared. You know, what we're telling clients are. Really understand your values and make sure that your values as an organization are are real and uh, will stand up to scrutiny. And if they don't, then you need to to make sure that you you take the right steps to make sure that they will in the in the near future. Because someone will find that they uh, they're, they're not holding any any water. Mm. Um, you know, I saw some of the the content on in your journal about um, brands taking a look at where they're advertising, where they're spending their, their money right. and making some, some tough decisions there. And so I like Kellogg's on, on Breitbart. Yeah, exactly. Out. And this is not to comment specifically about Kellogg's or, or Breitbart, but I would encourage... Oh, go on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I tell all our clients, take a look at where your brand is being presented, where you're paying to have it presented. You might be surprised. Um, mm. And there might have been a good reason for that a few months ago, but things have shifted. And in this shift, you need to realize that people are going to look at you, your brand, your products in a different light than they mm. were before. So, In a way, that, that that could be a good thing because I think as, as you mentioned an article on our website, there's always been this kind of view that corporate values are a little bit anodyne and safe and, and, and meaningless. Right. And now they perhaps they do have some meaning when, for example, it does require a, a brand like Kellogg to, to pull its advertising from Breitbart and then face a backlash for taking that decision. I mean, do you think the brands should be taking more of a stand? Oh, I, I definitely think they should. And I think if they don't, they'll be punished for it in ways they might not be able to predict right now. I think, I do think the Kellogg's uh, uh, approach was was brave and, and probably taken with, uh, you know, careful consideration to, to, to take on a, uh, 
you know, a, a trolling factory, I think, is a, is, is a, is a, is a tough decision to make. But mm. it was the right decision to make for that, for that company and for that, I mean, for that uh, series of collection of brands. So, yeah, I think that, that I would tell every company, take an honest look inside. Mm-hmm. Be sure you're, you are who you say you are. And then think about where you're paying to be seen, where you're being seen in your sponsorship, other, um, you know, your, the way you're talking to your employees, the way you're dealing with your communities. And make sure that you're, you're, you're true. I think for PR consultants, yeah, it's, it's probably an opportunity for us to help map out where they are and where they want to be, help them identify potential vulnerabilities, help them amplify um, potential strengths. But uh, I think a lot of companies, a lot of brands are going to go through some pain before they, they get to that point. Mm. And, I mean, looking at 2016, I guess, you know, one of the, the, the recurring themes is, is this divide, right? It's opened up a kind of a clear fault line. Um, do you think that puts the onus now on brands to, to, to have to pick a side? You know, brands, I think, companies have always wanted to, to play it safe. You know, everyone, as, I think as Michael Jordan said once, you know, even Republicans buy sneakers too. He, he didn't ever want to make a political comment. But is that kind of a, an approach really going to, or is it, you know, is it realistic? Well, days? it's a good example. You know, New Balance found out that it was, uh, you know, celebrated by white supremacy organizations as the official um, trainers for, uh, for, for white people. Mm. I'm sure that's not part of their marketing plan. I'm sure it's not part of their uh, their, their core values. But uh, but they found themselves in that in that discussion. So um, I don't think there's a one size fits all solution for for brands and organizations. But I think that certainly not for New Balance. Certainly, I think yeah, uh, for any uh, trainer sneaker company. But I think that um, you know just having uh, a series of you say anodyne mission statements or principles on your website and hopefully a few CSR campaigns to support that really won't be be enough anymore. And I think that brands and companies can expect to take fires, take fire mm-hmm. from, from you know, unexpected and maybe predictable sources as well. So they're going to have to know what they stand for. Mm. And, and to me, a, a value is only a value if you're willing to face the criticism, if you're willing to, to uh, you know, endure a boycott or, or a backlash. That to me is, is a real value and one that is, is true. If it's, mm. if it's flexible, if you fold at the first sign of, uh, of of opposition, then it's something less than a than a value. Right, that's a really good point. In your experience, how many? Not say how many. Obviously, don't name names. Well, you can if you want, but I suspect you probably won't want to. But do you feel like there is a high proportion of companies that you worked with that are actually willing to defend their values in that manner? You know, I think it it shifts back and forth, kind of depending on on the overall economic. Environment. I think it's mm. easier to be resilient and take risk when you're uh, either in a in a buoyant economy or you're doing well as a business. I mm. think it depends on a lot of it comes down to the the nature and integrity and character of the of the leadership, the CEO in particular, but but others in the organization. And I find that when you have someone who has a lot of personal character and strong commitment to values, that the organization tends to uh, to follow along, um, you know, more or less. Um, but I think that all companies, especially those that are publicly listed, have uh, an inherent tension in balancing short-term expectations with, with long-term commitment to, uh, to values. So when you're evaluated quarterly on your, on your performance, um, you have certain um, you know, reluctance to take risk or, or willingness to, uh, to, to, to remain committed to, to values. I think that when you have a long-term view mm. – you, you see that you'll get past this, uh, you know, this wrinkle, this challenge, this quarter. So I mm. think that every organization that, that, that trades like that has the same sort of short-term, mm. long-term tension. So hence, I guess, the Unilever 
um, position of not reporting quarterly because for that exact reason. Yeah, I, I think that it's um, it can be a it can be a, like everything it can be a strength or a weakness. Mm. I think that the the discipline and rigor of reporting uh, frequently quarterly um, does give you some um, some data and some milestones to hold yourself accountable to, but. I think the act of measurement. I think it's the Heisenberg principle. The, the very act of measurement can end up distorting what you're what you're measuring if you're if you're not careful. So, mm. sorry, we're drifting down academic uh, roots here. But I thought we were talking about Breaking Bad. But yeah, <laughs> no, you're you're right. Actually, I, th- I was thinking about it in in context of, of holding companies. I'm sure you're not referring to them, of course. But you know, this is one of the the issues that comes up all the time. Is you know the the uh, that that quarterly reporting mindset versus um, versus a more long term perspective. Well, you know, I've talked about holding companies before. I, I, again, I think it's a it's a strength, but it can be a, it can be a challenge for us as well. You know, I was at um, one of the assets held by Omnicom uh, well before it was it was acquired, and then I went through the acquisition process, and now I'm part of a, of a publicly traded listed uh, company. And I know that we are a better run, better disciplined business as a result of that. Mm-hmm than we were before. And I know that by delivering uh, consistent, predictable value to, to shareholders, we're forced to have a loyal, committed client base, and that forces us to have a, uh, an engaged, productive workforce. And so mm. that's a good place to start. Sure. So I'm not, I'm not worried about that so much, but, but I can see that short-term, uh, short-termism mm. can lead to shortcuts, and that can be a problem. And I think it's just something you have to be mm. a... Uh, have to be committed to. So coming back to some of these issues around post-truth and fake news, I mean, it, it, it's been a pretty tough time for the for the mainstream media. It seems. I mean, they, you know, I don't think any of them predicted Trump losing. Um, I think Brexit was a little different, but there's definitely a perception that it's almost as if the mainstream media is, is, is on the wrong side of history at the moment, um, and. How do you think that plays out um, when, you, when you're looking at lessons for the whole communications landscape? I think it, it must really suck to be a, a journalist in a, in a mainstream title right now because you must feel like you can't win. Um, you know, the, the, the structure of classical journalism is to present two sides of a, of a story um, and to give both equal weight and equal credibility and equal airtime or, or space or screen space. And I think that... Um, that lends itself to arguments of, of, of false equivalence, and I think that it's easy to uh, manipulate that if you are, you know, so inclined to uh, to try to to try to manipulate just classic journalism. So that puts mainstream titles at a disadvantage uh, against those who are not willing to to, to adhere to, to classic practices principles mm-hmm. uh, from from the start. Um, I think that they are, in some ways, inviting some of their own um, criticism. You know, reporting on every tweet. I'm not sure is uh, is is good journalism. On the other hand, if there aren't press briefings, if there aren't official communiques from uh, I'm talking about the you know the new Trump administration, mm. um, then what else are you going to write about? How else are you going to, uh, to to tell people what what policies might be coming forth? So uh, it's it, that part of the landscape has, has shifted and made it even more difficult for I think mainstream journalists to uh, to, to write. You, know, you and I were joking before about whether journalism needs its own its own PR campaign, you know, to kind of restore some credibility and, and faith. In, oh, um, the journalists would love that yeah. idea. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do wonder if um, 
if we are entering a, a different phase of, uh, of of the way people interact with each other in the world, and 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 well, I know we are actually, but and I think journalists will probably have to reinterpret their role in mm-hmm. that. And this isn't the first time journalists have had to go through this sort of um, you know reinvention from from a time when nobody was reading papers to there being mass paper circulation to radio taking over from newspapers from television taking over from radios. The nature of journalism has, has changed. The way information has been presented has, has changed. But it does feel that with each of those shifts, we're now entering kind of the final, I want to say frontier, but kind of the final barriers between uh, what is an attempt to be accurate and what is a direct attempt to be inaccurate and whose job is it to, uh, to, to referee. And mm-hmm. I'm increasingly convinced it's, it's up to the individual to you know, the, the reader, the viewer, the listener, to uh, to have the basic knowledge and, and skills to discern between what seems like a legitimate, uh, uh, credible piece of news and what seems like bullshit. And I'm not sure that um, I'm not sure that people have that sort of uh, of, of skill set. It would appear not. Well, but you know, to be fair. Um, you know, I've I've been looking at a lot of fake news sites just to just to better understand them. Mm. The fact is that mainstream journalism has been so successful in constructing in our minds what a legitimate news story looks like. Right. You know, it sounds like it comes from a source, a legitimate source, like the Cleveland Examiner. I don't mm. think that actually exists as paper. That if you read that, you think, oh, that's probably a real newspaper. Mm. There's a certain way of information being presented in the old. Mm-hmm. Inverted pyramid with the uh, you know right. the, the lead and then a little and yeah. then a, the two sides presented. The W's, and that's how people are used to uh, to seeing news. And mm-hmm. so when you present information that way, I think it follows along a, a neuro pathway that's mm-hmm. well established, and right. uh, you turn off a lot of, of innate cynicism or questioning and think, yeah, that sounds like it it can be true, especially if it validates a point of view that you already had or a suspicion that you had or a, an opinion that you had already formed. Um, mm-hmm. By the time you finish that, you're already hitting. You probably haven't finished it. You're already hitting share, click mm-hmm. or like, or saying this is right on. And then your circle of friends takes a look at that. They respect you, or they at least look at you as having a, uh, a similar point of view. Um, and they probably read even less of it before they're hitting click, like, or, or, or send. And so you can see how this is a you know it's an insidious uh, can be an insidious force in the way people receive information. Mm. The the implications for brands, going back to that again, is, is kind of interesting here because on the one hand, um, there's nothing to suggest that brands are particularly well-trusted, especially in, in, in developed markets. Um, and yet there perhaps is an opportunity for them to tell their side of the story uh, in, a, in, a, in a more interesting way than they've been accustomed to, or at least in a way that is more emotionally resonant. I think it's something that we've we've talked about a little bit within the public relations industry. Uh, maybe not relying. I don't want to say spinning the truth, but um, communicating in a more emotionally resonant manner rather than presenting a series of facts. But it seems to me that the risk there then is is this risk of of, um, of being a little liberal with the truth. Um, you know, straying from perhaps what we might call public relations into, you know, a, a more advertising type of approach where the actual veracity of what you're saying is less important than how you're saying it. Do you feel like that is something that could become an issue that, that 
we need to be cognizant of? Well, I think it's always been an issue. I, I, personally, I've always believed that the lines between advertising and PR in a marketing mm -hmm. sense have always been blurrier than, than probably wanted to, to admit. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's a lot of content that looks like editorial, you know, filtered, edited content that a journalist has taken a look at, and it probably really hasn't been. And I think there's a lot of paid content that's made to look th that way as mm -hmm. well. So I think it's always been a little bit... Um, Foggy, and that's why I think that, that the truth is a little bit subjective or a little bit, a little bit slippery. But I think in the PR business, which traditionally has relied on someone, a third party, to validate uh, some information, um, whether it's a journalist, an editor, or, or, or a producer, um, to poke around the, the claims, to, to present another side, um, has been one of the features of our of our strength because people mm -hmm. can look at that and say, okay, this is a good article about this underwear brand, this restaurant, this car, but mm -hmm. it seems pretty balanced. It's pointing out the other side. I think it, it makes sense to me. When, when trust in those sources is, is diminished, I think it diminishes the value of our, of our central proposition mm -hmm. that we're presenting a, uh, you know, a, a, a balanced view. Mm -hmm. to, to your first point, though, I do think there's an opportunity for, for brands to speak directly to consumers, mm -hmm. and some are beginning to do that. Mm -hmm. You might call it native advertising or advertorials, as they've been called. And I think that when the content's good and compelling and it rings true to, to people's experience with that brand, then that can be a very powerful and, and, and meaningful way for a, for a brand to, to um, you know, maintain its relationships with its customers or, or attract, attract new customers. And I don't think that's necessarily a, a bad thing. I know there are many people in the PR community who, who don't agree with that. But, mm. uh, but I think that we may be... We may be moving towards that environment more quickly as a result of, uh, of diminished credibility with mainstream journalism. Mm. It was an interesting comment I read from Harris Diamond, of course, who's the CEO of McCann, right after the election, where he said, "You know, his clients, the brands he represents, have got to have got to get in in, in touch more with 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 regular people." And actually, they've been too focused on in, in the U.S. context, too focused on the coastal elites, uh, which, if true, would would pr presumably uh, be an observation that holds true uh, across all types of of marketing and communications. You know, not not just limited to an yeah. ad agency like McCann. I mean, do you feel that's a fair? I mean, I don't want you to, to take shots at Harris. No, I have huge respect for Harris. I really <laughs> would feel the backlash. Um, but no, smart man, well informed, and yeah. great agencies around them. No, it, it's not. I, I guess I was reacting more towards the coastal elite comment. Mm. I'll come back to that. Um, I think all brands, all companies all over the world are perhaps a little too reliant um, on, on data, on, uh, on focus groups, on, mm -hmm. um, on consultants, and, and, and become a little bit distant from their, their end user or their intermediaries. You know, they, they don't really necessarily know who's using their, uh, their products. I always wince when I see a, an archetypical uh, a consumer used in, in a presentation, you know, like this is Susie Homemaker and this is what she thinks. And I just feel like that person doesn't actually exist, but you can mm -hmm. form a whole bunch of ideas about what her expectations are based on this fictitious uh, depiction of a, of a typical consumer. So, so yeah, I think he has a good point that we may be, uh, in the way we consult or, or offer our advice to brands and the way they accept it, they may be a little distant from from real people. I think then it's easy if you if you accept that then it's easy to try to reclassify what real people are and we start looking at them as coastal elites versus flyover states or mm. you know um, different types of people and that to me is just a different type of mm -hmm. 
of archetype, and I'm not sure that that's any more accurate than uh, than than actually um, getting to know real people and understanding what their what their real interact what their real needs are, what their real expectations are. So, so I think he's mostly right. I just I'm not sure I, I buy completely the uh, mm-hmm. the great divide between the coastal elites and, and the, the middle states. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up in, in a middle state. <laughs> um, most good. of my friends and family are from um, from states that wouldn't consider themselves uh, coastal elites. So mm. uh, maybe it's because I can see this from their perspective as well as from New York or L.A. or, or London that I see that it's a, it's not quite as, as, as black and white as people might suggest that it is. Or red and blue. Or red and um, blue. But is there perhaps an issue in that people in the marketing communications, whether it's within these companies or in agencies, are generally considered considered to be part of this 1% or part of the elite? I mean, is that an issue, do you think? Uh, I'll, I'll step back. I think the issue for us is that we are, uh, despite efforts, or despite kind of self-criticism that um, the the marketing communications PR industry is, is not diverse enough, it's, it's still pretty diverse in terms of uh, gender balance, in terms of... Um, Sexual orientation, you know, the, the creative workforce, I think, represents a pretty wide swath of, of humanity, whereas big chunks of consumers sit pretty narrowly in, in, in one band or, or another. Mm. And that could create blinders for us and, um, well, for us, you know, in terms of what people really think and how they really view. Yeah, I totally agree world, with that. I think. The world. So um, I, we, should still, we should still embrace diversity. We should still try to get. Uh, you know, people of different ethnic or religious or national mm-hmm. backgrounds into the business that, that aren't in the business now, and there's a lot of work to do. But in some ways, we're already not representative of the uh, yeah. of, of the wider population. Your thoughts on uh, Davos 2017 is going to be an interesting World Economic Forum. You've been, um, obviously, you've been to Davos in the past, and you've been a big uh, advocate for the event. And clearly, you know, it's, it's an important event. I've, I've been a few times, but it, it almost feels like after the events of this year that I don't want to say Davos man because that would be insensitive. Davos person is rendered more irrelevant than ever, and the the, the kind of smug Davos consensus. Yeah, I've been thinking is... about that. I, I, I'm not going this year, but I have been thinking about that and and how uh, how Davos will be covered, what mm-hmm. the discussions will be like in the in the conference center there, um, and it must be a humbling experience to to realize that a few years ago. Uh, that was seen as the uh, kind of laying out, literally laying out the global agenda for the year. Yeah. And um, geopolitically, business, socially, uh, even in inter- entertainment, because so many celebrities were going there, that kind of said, here's what's important this year. And 2016 was the anti-Davos year. Um, mm. Even people who've never heard of Davos or give a shit about it said, uh, yeah. we don't care about Davos right. or, or, or that. So. Yeah. So it, it'll be interesting. I, I do know just from our own interactions with them, uh, they're very well aware of this, and I think that that is a, uh, a phenomena, a trend that will probably dominate all the discussions. You know, oh, oh, I'm sure it's great content. Yeah. I mean, every conference we go to now is, is, is great content. I suppose the question is, and Davos prides itself not just on talking about stuff, but on actually affecting change. Whether it's as successful in affecting change, I'm not sure, but it seems like the distance between between rhetoric and realities is bigger than ever before at Davos. And I think that may be a challenge. I'm not sure how they how they get around that, really, unless they bring in more voices. Or... 
Well, I don't know their specific plans for uh, for inclusion this year. I know over the past few years they've tried to they be have. much more uh, open in terms of how, who they bring in and the, and the way the agenda is is structured. Um, I'm part of a, of a group, um, a, 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 they call them Global Agenda Councils, that's focused on behavioral change. And, mm. and it's literally looking at these issues. You know, how do you communicate in a way that's not manipulative, that um, is transparent, is, is fact-based? But how do you communicate things that people could or should do to improve their health, to reduce uh, the mm-hmm. risk, the, the, the you know, text driving uh, death, uh, road deaths? Um, to re- reduce the e- negative economic effects of racism or, or sexism, you know, and I think that's to me the real opportunity for PR—not to turn our backs on what's happening in the media landscape or with technology, but to really understand what's going on in people's minds. And that's what I'm kind of excited about for, mm-hmm. for 2017. And when I talk to our agencies or others, that's where I see them making in investments, you know, with with behavioral psychologists, uh, mm-hmm. behavioral economists. Um, Yep. evolutionary biologists, people who kind of have an understanding for how the brain is wired, mm. how it's likely to receive information and, and what sort of triggers or nudges are required to get people to move uh, you know, in a direction that um, is beneficial to them mm-hmm. but is predictable from, from those that are doing the communicating. Mm. And so talking about your, your new role, um, it's interesting in that one of the questions I wanted to ask you is that after you, you were European CEO of Ketchum for a long time and it appears that agency does not have a European CEO since your departure, uh, nor is in any great rush to appoint one. Uh, another Omnicom agency, uh, Fleischmann Hillard, also does not have a European CEO since um, the uh, previous incumbent in that role, John Saunders, became global CEO. Yep. So this is your opportunity to tell me that actually this, you know, this job you held for 10 years was... Uh, was, was really not be necessary. Easy, <laughs> easy for me to say after uh, leaving the uh, leaving the building that it wasn't a necessary job. Um, I think every agency structures itself based on whatever its its needs are in terms of its people, its clients, and its its uh, you know how it reports up to its parent company or to its investors. So they're all going to draw their their own conclusions. I think I know in the Ketchum case and the Fleischman case there were people in. Um, in operating roles that could easily pick up, uh, Mark Hume in my case picked up a chief operating officer role. Mm. I don't think, uh, with, with credit to him and, and no false modesty for me, I don't think anything's been dropped or there's been any <laughs> any big disasters uh, as a result of that. And the same for uh, for Olivier and, and, and John at, uh, at Fleischmann. I think that uh, nothing's been, been dropped there. But I do think that the way the business is is evolving, um, everybody in, in a senior role needs to think about, you know, what is my my real value for for the business? And for me, I, I'm grateful for the opportunity to to not just go into 2017 looking like I looked at 2016. You know, how can I get a little more growth? How can I make the uh, employees a little happier in their engagement survey? How can I get better feedback from clients? How can I win a few more awards? Those are all important things to ask, but. At some point in your career, you, you, you kind of want to ask uh, something a little a little bigger, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, for me, it was a great opportunity to think, how can I help these agencies and the people who work for them do things that they couldn't do by themselves? And yeah. sometimes that's just to collaborate on a project. Sometimes that's to go after a new client together. Sometimes that's to introduce a new service to a, to a current client. Sometimes it's to invest in a market that, that maybe they wouldn't have thought of or been big enough in, in their own. So those are all kind of the parts of my job that I'm, I'm most excited about. Um, mm-hmm. The thing that I wasn't expecting 
uh, that just kind of got added on to, to I guess, for the innovation part of my, uh, mm-hmm. my, my job was the opportunity to sit down with some of the bigger social media platforms and mm-hmm. look at their plans and, and needs and how they see themselves operating mm-hmm. with agencies. Um, so I've had great meetings with exactly the, the platforms you would, you would be thinking of, and they're very happy with all their, their client, I'm sorry, their agency relationships, but they see an opportunity to work more collectively, uh, you know, at, at the holding company level. And I think that there'll be some exciting things that we're rolling out next year with mm. them. Interesting. It, it seemed like the formation of Omnicom PR Group, um, take, looking at it in the context of the year, uh, was an example of or, or, or a response to rising um, client demands for more cooperation between in this case, public relations agencies. So that kind of horizontality that um, WPP CEO Martin Sorrell yeah. has, has talked about for a while. I mean, is that something that? Do you agree with that? Is that? Do you think that was that was a driver for 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 the group role to have have these ten agencies so that there's there's a layer there which ensures they are cooperating more uh, in response to client demands. Uh, I'm sure that was part of it. I'm sure it was driven also by uh, all the agencies saying they wanted investments in, in the same areas and they're oh, not right. really necessarily being a mechanism to, uh, to prioritize or, or you mm. know, rationalize that, whether that's an acquisition in a, in a new market or new technology or certain types of, uh, of talent. So I think it made sense once you've grown to having 12 different brands, um, three or four of them operating internationally, it probably makes sense to put some structure around that and try to give it some, some focus. Um, Speaking from my own um, interactions with with clients, um, some clients I meet with, they say, you know, we love the Portland guys. Uh, Mm -hmm. Happy to have uh, coffee with you once a year, but uh, don't worry about it. (laughs) Um, And that's fine. You know, I I think the first mission is to do no harm. Um, But when I've talked to other clients or prospective clients, you know, they'll say, look, you know, we we have respect for all of your brands, but you can't be strong everywhere we are. You can't be strong across the board of, of, uh, you know, the spectrum of our needs. If you could help me solve that, if you could bring some of your brands together in a way of solving problems that um, they couldn't by themselves, we'd be really open to that. So I've had a few encouraging conversations with clients who either came looking for that and they didn't know who to ask until I had the, the job or I brought it to their attention. They said that's a really interesting way for us to uh, to look at things. So I think you will see uh, you know, new partnerships forming uh, around specific client opportunities. And of course, Ketchum mm-hmm. and Fleischman enjoyed, and currently enjoy one for Philips. It's been in place for mm-hmm. nine years now. Um, we serve P&G in a, in a similar capacity across multiple networks. So I think you'll see more of these kind of bespoke solutions mm-hmm. coming uh, coming together. And I think that is kind of what, what uh, Sir Martin has, has been indicating. Um, mm-hmm. Now, he's doing it across the, you know, across this, the, across the line and and I think we have a few of those that are emerging but for the most part I think it's uh, 2017 will be focused on making sure that the PR brands are, are focused yeah, together. The interesting thing to me is that when clients look for these holding group solutions it's almost like public relations is not included a lot of the time right you have advertising and media and digital as a solution there's been a lot of big pictures yep. this year but public relations wasn't part of that which I think is interesting on its own but um, maybe we'll see some. It's change. a subject for another podcast, perhaps. I think so. But yeah. But what I have seen when when I have spoken to clients about PR, they are interested in a multiple agency solution, mm-hmm. um, and it's partly because they want to have more firepower when they're dealing with, um, 
you know, their colleagues in, in marketing or digital or, or social. And I think they feel like if they had, you know, a larger agency or agency consortium partner that they would have more mm-hmm. more political sway, uh, you know, back at HQ. Okay, well, good luck with the new role. I mean, do people kind of think, well, you you know, you, you were from Ketchum, so they, they're wary of your motivations, even though you're supposed to be in a kind of more neutral position now. Oh, I, I hope not. So, you know, most of the agencies are at, at a new building in uh, Bankside mm-hmm. by the by the Tate Modern. That's where I sit. I kind of rotate around and sit with the uh, with, with all the agencies. The only office that my card does not work in is Porter Novelli. So I've, oh, really, uh, <laughs> Porter? That wouldn't have been my uh, guess. No, I've, I've been anyway. joking with uh, with uh, Finn there that uh, she's blocked my, uh, my my card, and she'll say after she hears this that um, I, I'm invited, but it's my card still doesn't work there. So no, I don't think there's. Let's not assume she's going to listen to this, but anyway, yes. <laughs> <laughs> she may now. She may. Certainly not at this stage of the uh, of the podcast. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us. Actually, we 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 talked. I think we hit the the big events of the year, the stuff that everyone's talking about, and what a year it's been. Um, I'll see you in in twenty seventeen, and hopefully, uh, we'll have some some more positive stuff to I'm talk sure about. I'm sure we will. Maybe we'll do the next one from Hong Kong. <laughs> Perhaps, indeed. <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, this is Arun Sudhaman from the Homes Report. Thank you all for listening. Um, You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, on our website. Uh, Please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps us a lot. You can get in touch with us on various channels, on social media. You can even telephone us. Thanks. We'll be back next week. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to Marketeers 4DC for producing today's show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. 